right, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 7, if you would, if you have your Bibles. We'll be in Matthew chapter 7. If you've been following along, we have been studying through the book of Galatians. We're going to jump ship a little bit from that today and return next week. So we'll be in Matthew chapter 7. And as we begin, I really think it's an appropriate time for me to just take a moment and express gratitude personally from my family to you guys, knowing that you granted me and my family a summer sabbatical. So if you're visitors here, everybody hasn't seen me in a while. I've been off resting. It was very transformative and restorative, peaceful, restful. So from all my people, thank you very much. Felt so, so good. You know, uh, while I was there, uh, you know, you're there and then you come back and people want to know what you did. You know, how'd you spend your time? One day we were there with my family and we were on a lake fishing, just resting. And it was good to be in creation and we were worshiping God. And one of my kids happened to take a tumble into the water off the bank, fell in there, and they got back up, and no kidding, their first words to me as I kind of walked over there saying, are you okay, are you okay? They said, well, I guess I've just given you a new sermon illustration. <laughs> it's at that point that I knew perhaps you shouldn't use your children as sermon fodder, right? So I'm going to try not to do that today, but I will tell you a little bit about what happened on my sabbatical as we go along. You know, I, I'm not going to tell an embarrassing story about my kids, but I can tell a couple about my pets. Here's the first one. Over the break, I got a new muzzle for my pet duck. It's nothing fancy, but it fits the bill. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just warming up. Now, you can't say anything after that skit, bro. All right, uh, my dog, I really do have a dog. I don't have a duck, that's just a joke. But I really do have a dog. So I decide over sabbatical, I'm going to take my dog to obedience school. And they have obedience school. It just so happens that Sovereign Grace Church, many of you guys know Sovereign Grace. So I took my dog to obedience school at Sovereign Grace Church, but I got to tell you, I was a little disappointed. When he came back, all he knew how to do was heal. I love Sovereign Grace. We partner with them. Just a joke. More later about my sabbatical. But one true story that I really want to share. On my sabbatical, one of the things I did is I rented a cabin out in the middle of nowhere, okay? And so it's in another state, the four-hour drive, and I take off there. And the day before I take off on this big drive, I busted my phone up. Okay, so my phone's in the shop. So I haven't done this in a long time, but I'm going and I've got paper directions. I know nobody does that anymore. I'm a GPS guy. I don't even look at the road anymore. I just look at my phone when I drive. So I'm taking off, and this place is out in the middle of nowhere. And as I get there, a thunderstorm of Lutheran proportions descends upon me. 
I can't see anything, and I'm on these Podunkville roads, right, where if you get off a little bit, you're in the cornfield. So I'm driving. I can't see. I'm screaming out to God at one point, God, relieve this. Show me mercy. I can't see. Wondering if he can hear me through all the rain. I scoot six miles past the place, finally circle back, finally get there, and man, there is nothing there but a cabin and a whole bunch of fields. There's no cell phone service out there. My phone wasn't with me anyway. There is no Wi-Fi. To use the landline, you have to call collect. (laughs) So I'm there. And for a while, two or three days, this was Disney World for me, right? I wanted to be alone. But then about day three, here's a guy in a household of eight, right? I live with a lot of people. So I'm used to noise. About day three, it starts to get really silent. No DVD player there. They do have a VCR. <laughs> so I watched some Seabiscuit at one point. Uh, Toby McGuire came, good friends. But it was really silent. And it dawned on me sometime in this whole process that through a thunderstorm that had me calling out for mercy and the quietude of this cabin, God had me in this vice of contrast where he was begging me to come to himself. Right? That's what he wanted. He wanted himself to be my closest confidant and also the lighthouse in the storm. And he said to me, come. And I did. And it was sweet. It was so refreshing. And I had time in the Word. And through another sermon that I heard on sabbatical, I really feel that God would have me bring a few simple words about prayer today coming to Jesus. So that's what I want to just focus on for just a few minutes. Prayer and coming to Jesus. Charles Spurgeon once wrote, you will observe that the desire to commune with God is intensified by the failure of all other sources of consolation. There's Puritan writer Thomas Brooks who said, it's not the bee's touching of the flower that gathers honey but her abiding for a time upon the flower that draws out the sweet. And that's been my experience. And if I can do anything today, I want to encourage you in your prayers, coming to God, intimately calling out to Him, hearing, knowing the voice of God. That's what we're going to start with today. We're going to begin in Matthew 7, as I said, starting in verses 7 and 8 of Matthew 7. It's a famous passage. You've probably read it before. I just want to meditate on it again today. Read with me here as I read out loud. Ask, Matthew 7, 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, It will be opened. So as we look here at this passage, it's always important to understand the context. What came before this passage in Matthew 7. This is located at the end of Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. And what Jesus has told his people is there is this new wave of God's kingdom that's coming crashing into the people of God's expectations. It's to reshape them because in the kingdom, the values that really matter are honesty, purity, 
peacefulness, love of your enemies. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is about. And as you were hearing that, if you were really hearing Jesus say that to you, you would think, oh, that's some high expectations. Love my enemies? Marital faithfulness? Purity in my thought life? That's a high expectation. And then Jesus drops in this bit about asking. What's he doing? Well, he's saying these good gifts of honesty, integrity, generosity, loving your neighbor, they can be yours if you come to God and you ask. This is the medicine text after a somewhat brutal Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, my expectations for you are here. Then he says, and I will meet them for you if you just ask. I want to zero in here. Three verbs. Let me read it again. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. The one who knocks it will be open. Ask, seek, knock. Keep on asking. Keep on seeking. Keep on knocking. That's the call of Jesus to you today. John Calvin said that Jesus said the same thing, ask, seek, knock, in, this, in different ways to rouse us from our inactivity. That's why he's repeating himself. And yet, each of these words has a little bit of nuanced picture with it, right? Asking, seeking, knocking. There's some nuance I want to take a look at. First, think in your mind what Jesus is calling you to do when he says ask. What does it mean when you're asking? Well, first off, To ask means that you don't have it yourself, right? If you have to ask for something, it means you don't have it yourself. In this case, authority is what he mentions. I don't have the authority, so I'm asking for it. Those in charge don't ask, they take, right? Kings don't stand in line. The line forms behind the king. Jesus is saying, you're not the king of your world, but thank God I am your king. Come to me and ask. Jesus is Lord. We are the servants and we enjoy following him. But as I said earlier, to ask means you don't have something yourself. It's to emit a certain amount of bankruptcy here in your own spiritual aptitude. Right? When Jesus says, love your enemies. He's not saying, pull up all the love you have inside of yourself and throw it out there. No, there's an admission. I can't do that. I need you to do it for me, God, so I'm going to ask you to help me, empower me to love my enemies. We call the gospel good news because in the death and resurrection of Jesus, he had defeated sin and Satan. But the good news comes after some bad news that we can't do that ourselves. And so Jesus says, ask here. Because we're tainted by self-worship in all that we do. So at a very basic level, when Jesus is saying, ask, he's saying, you depend on me. And that's a good thing. Okay? You express your dependency on me through prayer. A certain posture of humility is needed here. And we see that. If you want to look back at Matthew 6, to the famous Lord's Prayer, beginning in verse 9. 
what are the first five lines of the way Jesus says to pray? The Lord's Prayer. Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then finally he says, give us this day our daily bread, right? The asking comes after a lot of dependency, God-focused prayer language. Recall the story when Jesus was telling us about temple worship. He zoomed in on two different guys at the temple. You remember that? One guy was a religious leader. He was like the pastor figure. He was in charge. And when he went to pray, what did he say? Oh, God, thank you for making me so good. I'm not like you, 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 and you especially not like the tax collector. Remember his prayer? But then the tax collector... He's over here and he's just beating his chest and he says, God, have mercy on me. That's the posture that we can have when we come and we ask. So here's the application. As you sit here today, I want you to know that God in Christ is calling you to humbly come to him and ask for deliverance. Wrap yourself up in the dependency of a humble tax collector. Question, can you come with him? Not so much with a list of things that you are owed, but with a meekness that Christ's mercy grants your faith. Knowing that he is at the root and also the reaping of all of your spiritual journey. Come to him and ask. That's the call of Jesus for you today. Secondly, of course, in the same passage, he says, seek. We're not just to ask, but we are to seek. That's a little different nuance, right? It's a little more active. Seek, search, seek, and you will find. And this language calls to mind Jesus' statement earlier in the sermon. Chapter 6, verse 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Much earlier in the Bible and the prophets, we see this same type of spiritual foraging in the prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 29, 13. Jeremiah said, the words of God, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. See that active, diligent, striving that's what God is after. That's what Christ is calling you to do. It's interesting here as you look in your Bible to note the first two stories of healing that come after this section on prayer. Okay, You can find them starting in chapter 8. So our text on prayer is in chapter 7. If you fast forward to the first verse of chapter 8, what you're going to see Matthew doing is modeling what we all want. We all want healing of our soul, of our situation, of our context when we come to God. Interesting, as Matthew portrays this. Look there for a moment. First person you have that Matthew says is coming to Jesus is a leper, right? Imagine the leper seeking out Jesus. When you study Jesus, there's two types of people he interacts with. Some, Jesus comes and he grabs them, he seeks them. But others are coming, running towards Jesus, right? Here, the leper is one who seeks. He is coming after Jesus. And what does he get? He gets clean. Here's someone 
society won't get anywhere near so much so he has to live outside the city. And yet when he comes to Jesus, when he seeks Jesus, he is fully cleansed. That's the picture Matthew wants you to grab about your own prayer life. Seek and you will find. Who's the next guy? You can find it in verse 5 of chapter Matthew 8. I want to read it here. The next guy is the warrior, the centurion, right? Here's his story. When he had entered Capernaum, this is Jesus, when Jesus kept going, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him. I like that word, appealing to Jesus, saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And Jesus said to him, I will come and I will heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed for I am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one of them, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. Listen, if you're ever like me and you find it sometimes a little hard to know what to do in prayer or to focus or to even know where to begin or sustain prayer, let the centurion be your professor, okay? Because look what he shows. First, he has humility, right? He says, I'm not worthy to even come. I'm not worthy. That's tax collector level humility, right? Second, he says, Christ, you are the supreme authority. I know what authority looks like, and man, you have it. That's a good lesson. Thirdly, verse 5 says, he came to Christ appealing from his gut. It was visceral when the centurion came seeking the face of the king. And it, you know, it dawned on me at some point during sabbatical that sometimes when I, when I do this, it, it, feels, it feels so natural. And other times it feels like such a discipline. If you, if you enjoy prayer, you know what I mean. Sometimes it just feels like all I can do is seek God. And other times you wake up and you feel so self-sufficient. It's a discipline. And other times circumstances just force you into seeking God. As I came off my sabbatical, the first Sunday back was actually a couple of weeks ago when we had the members meeting right here. And uh, as I was sitting here, uh, we got some really bad news halfway through the meeting. I was sitting in the back and uh, Robin was actually talking in the meeting. And I was pulled out of the meeting because we got a text as a family. We found out that one of the teens here in the community that we've been walking with for 13 years, his name is Jamari, had a horrible accident, car accident, while we were in our members meeting. He was over here on East Street on a bicycle, and he was hit by a car, thrown, of course, tremendous brain trauma, and he was in uh, the ER. So we rushed over there, me and my wife. Julie got there first. I got there second. And as I was getting in the ER, they led me back to the family room. And as I hit the door, I heard this almost inhumane screaming. Screaming that could only come from a mother who knows their child is about to die. Ah! And I walked in there and my, my wife had caressed the mother. So I hurried over there and I just prayed. 
I don't know where, it was a spirit, right? I don't know where it came from. I don't remember what I said, but I called out to God, seeking his face, and he responded. The spirit came and gave her a calmness of spirit in a supernatural way. And later, we found, we got our first report back from the emergency room doctors, and they said, it's not good. He's now bleeding on his brain. So we have to try to save his life through surgery. So we sat there for the next two hours, me, my wife, and the family. And at one point, we all go to the chapel, and I said, I just want to pray. And so we prayed, and we prayed some more, and we're weeping, and we're calling out to God. Right when we stop is when the doctors come out. The doctors say he's going to live. We were able to stop the bleeding on the brain. Praise God, he's still recovering today at the ICU. That was a moment when I was sucked into seeking God. And it was glorious. Didn't plan it. Didn't summon it from myself. He sucked me into the seeking. And it was wonderful. Wonderful. The idea here reminds me of the text in Hebrews 5, 7. It says this, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears. That's what he's talking about when he says, seek, seek, crying. He prayed to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Jesus' reverence is tied to his passionate seeking of God's faith. And now to you, will you pray with a life and death zeal this week, think about something you're passionate about. Some of you guys are really good planners, not me, you love, but you like your calendars, you like schedules, you can organize an event, man, you're passionate about that. Even in ministry, you love organizing things that will love people for Jesus. Will you pray with that same type of passion or strive to seek? Some of you are people people, right? You love the relationship. You are a networker and you're good at it. And that's glorious. But will you seek the face of God with the same zeal with which you network with people? That's his call to you. Come and seek the God of the universe. Ask, seek, knock is next, right? Knock. The third call of Christ to you this morning is to knock. Surely this hints at persistence, right? I live in a neighborhood and I have several children, which means I get a lot of knocks on my door. Most of them are not trouble. (laughs) Most of them are not people looking for my kids. But they are never single knocks. Nobody ever comes up to my door and goes... Right? That way. Or, or sometimes a little kid is bam, 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 bam. Knocking has to be by nature persistent. That's what he means here. This text has a parallel in Luke 11. Luke tells the same story of the Sermon on the Mount. But there he adds a little story in, Luke does, in verses 5 through 13. And it's the story of someone in the middle of the night, going to a neighbor's house. And he's knocking on his door. Bam, 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 bam. Bam, 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 bam. And his neighbor's like, go away. Me and my family are in bed. 
The guy knocking said, yeah, but I got a visitor here and I need some food for him. Bam, 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 bam. The scripture says because of his bold audacity and his persistence, the man is finally rewarded. And then Luke goes on to say, ask, seek, knock. We are to be persistent. Think about Jesus in the garden, right? Three times he calls out to God. Ah, if it's your will, let this cup pass. Let this cup pass if it's your will. Don't let me drink your wrath unless it's your will. It bleeds persistence. That's what Christ is calling you to today. And that's the very nature of the gospel. The gospel is all about persistence in a God-centered way, right? Think about the very beginning of the Bible. It almost opens with God calling to people, where are you? Remember Adam and Eve in the garden? God's calling not because he doesn't know. He's calling because he is going to be persistent throughout the whole story of redemption in the Old Testament. We see God pursuing his people over and over again. And God's people run, but they cannot outrun the persistent herdsman. Revelation 3, 20, we see Jesus showing himself, knocking on a door. He says, behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in, eat with him, and he with me. Christ pursues his people. He came from heaven, was born for your sake beaten for your sake, tortured for your sake, died for your sake, all to make God look splendid. All for the glory of God, he pursued and he persevered until he justified you by faith on the cross. And he wasn't done. Then he rose from the dead to seal the deal, to show that a new creation had started in which your new birth fits perfectly. Still he wasn't done. After he came up from the dead, Jesus pursues you by saying, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, a helper, to come. And he will what? He will be with you forever. Right? I'm going to pursue you forever with the Holy Spirit. Always making you more holy. Always delighting you more in Christ. Always showing you more and more of God. That is the persistence that is seen in the gospel. God wants us to respond with persistence as well. In 1787, British politician William Wilberforce set out to end the slave trade in Britain, right? And he said very early on, as a younger man, he quibbed to someone kind of naively, I don't think this will take very long. And the following year, he had 12 resolutions to end slavery, and each one of them got shot down by the government. Then again, 1791, 92, 93, 97, 98, 99, every year he would have these resolutions come up from the parliament, and they would always squash him took him 20 years of knocking on the door of human decency to finally end the slave trade. What a model of persistence for us. 
May you feel the sweetness of persisting with God in prayer. That's what he's calling you to do. Persist in prayer. Now I want to turn the corner here from what Christ is calling you to do. Think back to my sabbatical for a moment. A lot of people use sabbatical for self-improvement, maybe, or introspection. It's funny, my, my first Sunday morning back last week, uh, Matt Benson uh, was joyfully introducing me to three uh, visitors who had come. College students, I was happy to see. And the first thing he said about me was not, hey, here's, here's my pastor, he loves to pray, uh, here's a great mentor. It's not what he said. <laughs> he said, here's a guy, and he has some really bad jokes. <laughs> he didn't. He did not lie. <laughs> so speaking of self-improvement. So on sabbatical, I decided to tackle my fear of speed bumps. Huh. Fear of speed bumps. Don't worry, I'm slowly getting over them. <laughs> uh, okay, okay, for real. I also, some of you guys will be really happy about this, because if you know me, or even if you don't know me, you can tell, I, I don't hear well. I have a hearing loss. And people in my world, they have to deal with it. So on sabbatical, I decide I'm going to get this worked on, right? So I go to the hearing doctor. And he looks at me, and he says, okay, uh, which ear is it? And I said, 2018. <laughs> that might be my favorite hearing loss joke. <laughs> I can't tell if you like it, because I can't hear you, but I like it. <laughs> but I want to be clear about something, all right? Crystal clear. When you think about prayer, prayer is not a self-improvement type of project. All right? It's not about doing better. When Christ is calling you, ask, seek, knock. He's not just saying, do better at prayer. Instead, he's saying, depend on me in prayer. He's choosing those words instructively to spur you to action, but it's not just saying, come on, get in line. He's not your track coach. Come on, get your knees up. Instead, he is saying, depend on me because the glorious thing about prayer and Jesus in general is that when he calls you to do something, he's going to give you a pledge. All right? He pledges something to you. If he's asking you to do something, he'll empower you to do it. And you see that in the text, and it's very, very hopeful. I just want to share it with you. Okay? So here's Christ's pledge to you. Christ's call to you is to act, ask, seek, and also knock. But his pledge to you is twofold. Here's the first part. First part is God is for you. All right? If you're a child of God here, God is for you. Keep reading in the text. Back to Matthew 7, verse 9. He uses an analogy here. Here's what he says. Which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, 
how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? What's he talking about? God is for you. This summer, I went to a place called Edisto Island in South Carolina. It's a place where nothing happens. That was fine by me. There's water there. There's ocean. That's all I needed. Uh, But there is a serpentarium there. You know what that is? That's a snake house. Many of you would not like to go to the snake house, but that is right up my alley. Some of my kids wanted to go. Some of them really didn't. So we went there. Snakes everywhere. You should go to it. But at one point, they were doing an educational presentation, and they had boxes lined up with snakes in them on the stage. Some were non-venomous snakes, and some were venomous snakes. And there was an expert there, and she would pull out the non-venomous snake, and uh, she would wrap it, and she would teach us all about it. She even let us hold it. That was really cool. But at one point in her presentation, she reached down, and she said, now I'm going to get out the very dangerous coral snake. All right, that's venomous, bad news. She reaches down there, and she's got a pole that she's going to handle it with. And she opens up this, uh, this box, and she reaches down there with the pole, and the pole gets stuck. And so she's like, well, I wouldn't really recommend this, but I've got to go down there and get it. She reaches down there, and then she's like, ah, pulled back. Yes. And the snake, brightly colored cool snake, goes flying from the box, and it hits the stage right beside her, and it's a rubber snake. <laughs> yeah, the mothers in the audience hated it because their kids were like, ah, but I liked it. I thought it was a pretty good gag. Now, get the picture in the parable here, what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying God is not a trickster God, okay? He's not the type of God when a child would ask for some fish that he puts a snake on the plate as a trick, right? In the ancient world, bread was served in little small loaves, and a stone was almost about the same size. God's not going to give you a stone. You ask for bread. You're not a trickster bait-and-switch parent. And your God is not a bait-and-switch God. Now, here's why this matters. Here's why I want to focus on this for just a minute. And this was explained to me by a professor at Dallas called Max Anders. Here's what happens. Many of you, when you were younger, were badly mistreated or abused or taken advantage of. And you have to know that that is going to shape the way that you come to God. Okay? Many of you come to God knowing that perhaps after a time of kind of stringing you along, or a season of security, the same old, same old is going to happen, and God is going to pull the rug out from you because that's what your authority figure. That's what your dad did. That's what your mother did when she left you. Is framing your view of God. Deep down, you feel like God exists to give you some type of grief, but that's not even the full picture, right? Because you also have a category that God is completely good. You're not doubting his moral goodness, so every time you feel like God is pulling a rug out from under you because you know God is good, you start to blame yourself. And you start to say, oh, I deserve that must be my fault again. And your soul begins to be crushed. That's what Jesus is warning you against here. He's making his pledge to you 
Brothers and sisters, he wants you to know God is for you. He's not a distant, absent, or accusing father. Not who God is. He's as near as a fresh, cool spring breeze, wanting to give you life and maintain it. He's as accepting as a father, as your best friend, someone who will patiently listen to all your stories, and they want to hear him. He's as safe and wants to wrap you up and carry you on eagle's wings. God is worthy of your trust. You must know when you pray to him, God is for you. That's Christ's first pledge to you this morning. God is for you. The second pledge here, equally important. God will give you good things. Okay, notice that in the text, verse 11. Jesus says, again, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, by evil he means, what I said earlier, humans are tainted with self-worship, right? But even if you guys can give your kids good things, think about God. How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Right, so the key to understanding this is going to be wrestling with what good is. When Jesus said God's going to give you good things, you must know what good is. Again, it's really helpful to look at the context. What does Jesus talk about in the very next verse? If you're following along, what comes up in verse 12? Call this the golden rule, right? What is it? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. That's what good is. Loving your neighbor like you want to be loved. When Jesus promises good things, it means he can give you the power to love others. That's what's good. That's his pledge to you. I can give you neighbor love. If you come to me, I can make it yours. What else is good in this context? Look back again at the Sermon on the Mount. Starts in verse 5. Just look back a page. Verse 21 starts a section on anger. Right? In verse 5, God can give you reconciliation. Verse 27, there's a section on lust. God can give you the good thing that is purity. Verse 31, Jesus speaks against divorce. God can give you what's good. That's faithfulness. Verse 33, he speaks about honesty. Verse 38, don't retaliate. Have self-control. That's the good thing that God pledges to you. 43, love your enemies. That's good. Start of chapter 6, social justice. Give to the needy. I can make you generous. That's a good thing that God pledges to give you. 616, Section on hungering for God. Feeling dry in your spiritual life. I get it. I get it. God can give you and pledges to give you a hunger for himself. On and on he goes. Peace. Generosity. Esteeming others. Start of chapter 7. God can give you these good things. The good things he's speaking of specifically are the things of the kingdom. 
And this helps us understand a little bit later in Matthew, if you read it in chapter 21, verse 22. Jesus says this statement, and whatever you ask in prayer, you'll receive if you have faith. He's qualifying it because he's saying, a man with faith is going to ask for these good kingdom things. God, make me honest. Give me love for neighbor. Give me generosity. Make me someone who is faithful. Another way of understanding what Jesus means when he says, God will give you good things, is to think about this in the ultimate sense. God is looking after in each and every moment of your day, even while you're sitting here, God is looking after your eternal good, your forever good. Call the scene in Revelation 5. Remember what's happening there? John is having a vision. And someone steps forward, an angel, and he'd got in his hand the scroll, and the scroll contains all of God's purposes. And then a panic breaks out. Because the scroll is sealed, and nobody can enact, no one can activate God's purposes. So John looks around, and he starts screaming, he says, I know God's got good for us. I know he wants to redeem all the world, make new creation. But nobody can make it happen. And then the angel steps forward, and he says, calm down, John. Because look over there, there's the lion. The lion of the tribe of Judah can make these good things happen. And John looks over, instead of the lion, what does he see? The lamb standing, how? As if he was slaughtered, right? It's because through the death and resurrection of Jesus, he has already bought you these good things. Eternal bliss and joy and harmony with God will be forever yours. But there's a path to get there. There's immediate things that God wants to give you that will lead you there. So when Christ pledges that God will give you good things, he's in one sense pointing towards the realities in line with the promised kingdom. You can see him looking forward in Matthew too. Again, look at the healings right in chapter 8, right after our passage. 8.1, what happened? Cleansing of the leper. Think about all things being purified. That's a good thing that God's going to give you. You're going to be part of this purification process. 8, verse 5, we talked about the centurion. What happened there? There was a paralyzed servant who couldn't move. God is going to give you everlasting freedom and life forever. That's a part of the good things Jesus promises. Verse 28 of chapter 8, what's going on in that story? Well, that's the famous story where Jesus takes the demons out of the human, and he pitches them into the pigs. God's purpose, his good purpose is to defeat Satan once and for all. When Jesus pledges to give you good things, he's saying, I'm going to defeat Satan for you. Now, of course, a skeptic can ask some questions here, and I'm a skeptic. I'm wired that way. There's a surface-level question that's kind of like, well, if Jesus promises to give me good stuff, if I just ask for it, and why don't I have all the stuff I've been asking for, right? A good question. One of my children at one point who loved to play sports told me they had been praying regularly for super speed. Which is a very rational prayer, right? God says, ask for it, I'll give it to you. You trust him in that and you pray for super speed and that's a good prayer request because Flash would be great at sports. But guess what? God doesn't grant it. Why? Is it because he can't? No, man. 
scientists have discovered these Jupiter-sized blobs in space matter that can move at 99.9% of the speed of light. God could make you have super speed if he wanted to, but he's not doing it because of your motivation. All right? James talks about this. James chapter 4, verse 3. He says very clearly, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passion. Right? Not the kingdom stuff, but your own stuff. He's not a genie in a bottle granting wishes here. That's not who he is. He's a king bringing in a kingdom. Right? He responds to kingdom motivation that still leaves other questions, right? We don't have time to address them all, but one is, well, what about a pray for something that looks really good and spiritual? I'm praying for the conversion of my children, and I haven't seen it yet. My mother's age, and I'm praying for her conversion, and honestly, she's still like, meh. If that's you, it's a really good question. I read this week, missionary Tracy Wallace speaks on this. And she points us both to the cross and Jesus in the garden before it. Listen to what she says. She says, as we meditate on the dialogue between the Father and the Son in the garden, ask yourself this question, all right? What does it mean that the Father said no to the request of Jesus to be delivered from the cross? Besides the fact that we wouldn't be saved if he would have said no, what would it mean for us if the Father had said yes? Right? Picture yourself in the garden. Okay? Remember what happened. Jesus is there on his knees. Sweating tears, man. And he's calling out to God. And let's say you were there and you didn't fall asleep. But you're there with Jesus. And you hear him down on his knees and he's pleading. Don't let me die. Don't let me die unless it's your will. Don't let me die. You're thinking what? Yes. Yes, Jesus. It would be very bad for you to die. You're only 33. You could teach and 200 more Bibles could be filled up with just your words. God, don't let him die. That would be really bad. And I know that death here would not just be death. It would be torture. God, don't let Jesus be tortured. Because if he does, no one's going to want to follow him, right? That doesn't make any sense at all. And oh, the healings. God, when Jesus cries out, let this pass from me. You're saying yes, because I want to see tens of thousands more people healed. My family. And what would have happened if I was your pastor one day after Jesus died? You would have had some questions for me, right? You would have been saying, why didn't God answer Jesus' really good prayer request? I'm mad at him, because that was a good one. There's no reason why God would not answer that. God has some mysterious knowledge that we don't have. God knew the redemptive purposes he had for Jesus, right? We just couldn't see it in that moment. We're too small, we're too limited. This week as I was preparing for my sermon, uh, my four-year-old came into my study and I have a picture of my father there. He looked up at it and he was like, hey, who's that? Now, he was two when his grandpa died in 2016. doesn't really remember it. Uh, but I remember it. I've told you before, I think, about my father. About 16 years ago, in the same month, he gets a dual diagnosis, a one-two punch. 
You've got cancer and you have Alzheimer's at age 55. Right? Dad used to joke, where I get it, he used to joke, he used to call it Alzheimer's disease, old timer's disease, because you don't get it until you're 70 or 80. Joke's on him, he got it at 55. What did that mean for me? Man, I was asking. I was seeking. 16 years knocking. And God did something amazing. He cured his cancer through the work of the doctors. Amazing. And I said, God, wouldn't it be good if dad was the guy that walked around and everybody said, ah, look at that. There's a miracle, a Lazarus. But he didn't cure him of his Alzheimer's. So for 16 years, he died tragically and slowly. And the family has to wrestle with this, right? This is the way life works sometimes. We don't always get it. And I had to wrestle with the embrace of a God who doesn't always give me what I want. Why? Because he's put boundaries up here that I just don't fully understand. But I know, just like God made good on not answering Jesus' request in the garden, he's going to make good on my request to heal my father. Somehow, I don't really understand it, but I know who God is. I know the type of God he is. And it's interesting, if you look at this passage, back in chapter uh, 7, verse 7, when God makes his pledge, If we ask for bread and fish, does Jesus promise to give it? He really doesn't, does he? If you read that carefully, he doesn't say, I'm going to give you bread and fish. He says, I'm not going to give you something bad. Right? Not always going to give you what you want, but what I give you will be ultimately good. Very interesting in the parallel passage in Luke 11, Luke describes a scene And he has Jesus saying, not God will give you good things, but God will give you the Holy Spirit. Very interesting. The good things God is going to give you are spirit-filled, wrapped up in mystery. They blow like the wind. You're not going to fully understand them. I told you this week, I spent some time in the hospital as Jamari is recovering from his awful accident. Uh, One of the things they did when they were in brain surgery is they put a uh, tube inside of his skull to drain some fluid to relieve the pressure there. And as he was recovering, I happened to be there the day when he had recovered so much that they were going to remove and take him off some of his uh, tubes and medication. They were going to pull the brain tube out. And I was in the room there with a family member. And the surgeon who did the operation actually came by, gracious guy, uh, very smart and wise, and he said, yeah, I think it's time to remove this tube. And I was sitting there with a family member, and she said, oh, wait a minute. Whoa, whoa. Is that going to hurt him? Uh, I don't think this is a real good idea, because what if something goes wrong? Is this going to be really messy? Now, with all of her, which is zero, training in brain surgery, she still felt compelled to interject what she felt was right. Huh? How did the brain surgeon respond? Well, he was very wise, very gracious. He said, look, ma'am, I'm the one who put that in there, and I get to decide when it comes out. He knew exactly what needed to be done. Now, the gap between her brain surgery knowledge and his brain surgery knowledge, multiply that by 60 billion, and you still don't have the gap between your knowledge of goodness and God's knowledge of goodness. All right, we have to trust 
that we don't see the whole picture. John Calvin puts it like this. Christ therefore enjoins us to submit our desires to the will of God that he may give us nothing more than he knows to be advantageous. We must not think that he takes no notice of us when he does not answer our wishes for he has a right to distinguish what we actually need. All of our affections being blind, the rule of prayer must be sought from the word of God, for we are not competent judges of so weighty a matter. I think he's right. I think he's right. Picture yourself, if this helps you, on the edge of a cliff. On the other side of the cliff is all the ultimate joy, fulfillment, forever good that you will ever want with Jesus himself. And the way to get there is this rickety bridge one of those swinging bridges with holes in the plank. It's not very trustworthy, but somebody's given you a backpack with some brand new planks. And they have told you, as you go along, toss these good planks down. And as you step on the good plank, you'll make it all the way to God. And as you start doing what happens, you toss one down, you step on it, it's good. You toss another really good plank down, but it, it hits wrong and it topples off into the ravine. The next one you toss down is good. The next two you throw down bounce funny, and they go down to the ravine. And you finally, though, get to the edge and you start thinking, what was wrong with all of those that fell off? Well, I couldn't step on those because they would have never gotten me to where God wanted me to go. That's the way it is with a lot of our ideas and the things we toss up to God. They don't fit within the boundaries. Author Trillia Newbell says it this way. The quote's kind of long, but I like it. She said, this year may be filled with a bunch of no's. It may be another year of unanswered prayers or waiting or longing, and it may be another year of pain and sorrow. But God is not only holy, majestic, and just. He is our Father in heaven. He is our near, intimate, involved, loving Father. Because He's our Father, we can continue to ask and pray because He is near because he's given us the spirit of the son, our hearts can cry, Abba, Father. God, our Father, is perfectly loving. He's guiding, directing, protecting. He's laying down boundary lines for the good of us and for his glory. He's leading us through the joys and the sorrows. These lines aren't about our present state, but what it will lead to, a beautiful inheritance. And we know we can trust God because he showed his infinite love for us when he sent his only son to Calvary. Jesus wasn't walking through fog. He knew exactly where he was headed. And he endured it to the end. Sometimes it's foggy for us here, right? But as a result of this sacrificial death, we know Jesus' love. We can draw near to him in confidence. He beckons us to come and taste and see that he is good. Let's remember Christ's pledge to us this week. God is for you, and he's going to give you good things. In response, he's, he's calling you to ask, to seek, and to knock. I want to pray as we lead into the Lord's Supper. Not long ago, I read through some prayer books, and one of this contained this prayer that I want to read to you here. This prayer was written by a man named Scotty Smith. I want to pray it with you, and then we'll move towards the Lord's Supper. Let's pray together. God... God, in the gospel, we enjoy eternal, unbreakable union with you. But, Father, for various reasons, we tend to flow in and out of communication with you. 
God, the sad thing is sometimes we don't recognize our heart drift for quite a while, days or months. It's usually people around us who first recognize our being out of fellowship with you for being with you changes the way we relate to everyone in our relationship. Jesus, that's why there's no greater rebuke than to hear you knock on the door of our hearts. Yet at the same time, that knock comes as an expression of great love, like a kiss. Indeed, nothing is more convicting than to hear your voice on the other side of the door pursuing us, yet your voice is that of a bridegroom wooing his beloved bride. God, it's because you love us that you confront us and discipline us. All of your rebukes are life-giving. And when you discipline us, though it's painful, it's always for our good and for our freedom. It's your kindness that leads us to repentance. You'll never humiliate us, God, only humble us. You'll never shame us, only shake us to wake us back up to gospel sanity. Jesus, your knock and your voice in the gospel are so powerful. And by faith, right now, we rise to greet you, God. Come in and let us feast together this very day. You are the bread we need the most. You give the water that alone quenches our thirst. Being with you, we desire nothing else on this earth. And God, until the day when daily fellowship meals are replaced with a wedding feast, may we have to hear your knock on the outside of the door way less often. So very amen, we pray with gratefulness in your loving name. Amen.